Hi friends, welcome back to the PCOS Nutritionist Podcast. If we haven't met yet, then my name is Claire. I'm a registered nutritionist and I have a background in exoscience and natural fertility education as well. And I have PCOS too, so I know how frustrating these symptoms can be. And that's why I specialize just in PCOS and helping you understand what's driving your symptoms and where to start looking as to what you can do about them. Because there is no one size fits all plan for people with PCOS because we're all different that is part and parcel of it being a syndrome right so a syndrome is just a collection of symptoms that the medical community bang together to make sense of something kind of like irritable bowel syndrome or premenstrual tension syndrome all those conditions syndromes have something in common which is that um There isn't one thing that leads to them and therefore there isn't one treatment as I'm sure any of you who have had IBS will know that unfortunately many of the common things that a doctor would give to you like drugs and surgery aren't really appropriate for something like IBS and same thing with PCOS. There are some things that can help but really we we need to look at what is driving that hormonal imbalance in your body and that's really what PCOS is, is a hormonal imbalance and there are other systems in your body that contribute to that. Most commonly, blood glucose and insulin, your stress hormones, your thyroid, and chronic inflammation. And then we go a layer deeper and go, okay, well, if we do know that your insulin is high, then what can we do about that? Can we modify that using by changing your diet or changing the way that you exercise, focusing on sleep, identifying any micronutrient deficiencies, and really making sure that we're optimizing your insulin blood glucose and yes yeah we absolutely can and it makes a massive difference so that's really what my job is to do is identify that for you and then match you up with the right plan and that's the way that I work in my PCS protocol program so the first week as you come in we identify what's driving that for you and then we match you up with the five most important changes that you can make. We don't completely strip out every fun thing in your life. We just go, right, what's actually going to make make the needle move and then, um, and then give you that rather than, okay, well, you just have to stop eating gluten and dairy and sugar and uh, you're not allowed to drink alcohol and, you know, it's like, well, no, not necessarily. Some of those things might be important, but often not all of them and so it's about finding that important thing for you so that is what we do and one of the things I mentioned before was sleep right when I say well is it you know if it is say high insulin or is high stress hormones or chronic inflammation then what's driving that is it uh, that you aren't getting enough or enough good quality sleep and this is something that so many of us have experienced during lockdown right is just this insomnia that's come out of nowhere or maybe for you this has been going on for many many years where you either really struggle to get to sleep or struggle to stay asleep which I think is probably one of the worst when you you know you're in bed and you're just trying to sleep and yet it's like four o'clock in the morning and you're wide awake or you go to bed feel like you have had a good decent sleep you know you've got at least seven if not more hours sleep but yet you still wake up feeling exhausted so that those are three really common sleep patterns and um i've done a i've done podcasts previously about the importance of sleep for each of the pcos root causes and we'll link them in the show notes for you to go and back and listen to why it's so important but 
many of you I know come to me and say, yeah, Claire, got it. I know that sleep's important. I'm trying, but yet it is not happening. Or I'm waking up still feeling exhausted, even though I should have had a good night's sleep. So today I'm going to take you through some hacks, some sleep hacks that can help you have a better sleep or get to sleep earlier or stay asleep. Yeah, so not waking up um, throughout the night. And this is something that I've been using with some of my Women in the Peace protocol. Uh, and it has these some of these sleep hacks been really, really effective for them. So I thought that I'd share it with you because sleep's something that's universal, right? Like it doesn't actually really matter what's driving your PCOS. I think that sleep is just one of those universal foundation health things that we need to get right. If we don't, the whole health building around us is going to crumble down so it doesn't matter what's going on for you what's driving your PCOS sleep is going to be essential so this one is for all of you okay so firstly I'll just define what good sleep consists of so good sleep consists of at least seven up to nine hours of sleep where you're getting each of the sleep stages and enough of those so we sleep stages are REM sleep that's a rapid eye movement sleep that's your dreamy sleep and then deep sleep which is the what's called non-REM sleep and then you have light sleep as well but we want to make sure most people get enough light sleep it is the REM or deep sleep that they struggle to get and these are both super super critical so sleep is not merely the absence of wakefulness you know it's not the opposite of wakefulness that would just be unconsciousness. Sleep is a really well-structured process that evolution has designed to maximize our brain repair and our body repair. You know, it plays a huge role in, well, most of the role in our memory, uh, in our immune function, in our recovery and restoration. In fact, most processes in our body, in our brain, actually are restored by and depend on sleep but no one type of sleep achieves all of that that is why we have this really complex system of non-REM sleep so your deep sleep and your light sleep and also your REM sleep so those all of those stages are critical for performing different functions otherwise evolution would have wiped them out by now So when you think about REM sleep, the way that I remember it is REM sleep dreaming mostly around your brain. So things involved around your brain like memory, recall, motor learning, creativity, problem solving, but not just this more, you know, what you might think of tangible things like learning and memory, but also things like our emotional uh, stability and our mood and stuff like that as well. So REM sleep is actually the only time when our brain is doesn't have to fight off the anxiety triggering noradrenaline right cortisol is what I call it in in the in New Zealand but you in the US might know this is noradrenaline so your body uses this time when you're in this REM sleep to actually relive some of those things that have happened during the day you know some of those you know maybe arguments you had and, and you might not realize this it's not that you maybe dream about them but those it's your brain is able to kind of relive that in a more safe environment because it's not got the cortisol that's associated with that emotion that was happening at the time. So, you know, difficult things and even traumatic events um, are sometimes almost what you might think of as like blunted due to REM sleep. That's one of the roles that it can actually have. But that's not the only thing. It means that we can then 
manage our emotions better during the day. And many of us will understand, you know, I can think of so many different occasions where I have had a poor night's sleep and then go to work and am just grumpy at the slightest thing that would normally not affect me at all. Whereas, you know, having had a good sleep, it's amazing how kind of resilient you can be. And this is because REM sleep is really important for helping us in terms of our what we think of like emotional intelligence. So that ability to kind of control our emotions and not fly off the handle any small thing. So this is because part of the brain called the amygdala is responsible for triggering emotions like anger and frustration and lashing out when we, you know, or sending back a snarky email when it didn't really re- require it. And this is linked to our fight and flight response. So what we know is that, you know, there's been some really interesting studies about this. So one study, what they did was that two groups of people, they took them two groups and they showed them images that range from neutral in content, like a basket or a piece of driftwood, to negative content, like a burning house or a venomous snake. They showed them to the individuals. So one group stayed up all night and the other group got a full night's sleep. So what happened is it turned out that the sleep-deprived individuals showed well over 60% increase in emotional reactivity in their amygdala. So they had them on connected up so they could see what their brainwaves were doing and they could see that their amygdala was firing up far more um, brainwaves in response to these images than what the people that had had a good night's sleep were. And remember, these were just pictures, right? It wasn't like there was a venomous snake in the room with them. So what it shows us is that especially REM sleep and getting a good night's sleep is super important for putting those threats into context. So sort of like, you know, just saying how you might find that in work, you just fly off the handle for a small thing that normally wouldn't bother you at all. Same thing, you're not really able to put the threat into context. Actually, that wasn't really a big deal. You really overreacted to that. And that's really what that amygdala is showing. That hyperactivity in the amygdala is showing our overreaction, something that's not even a threat. It's just a picture. So when you do what I do, fly off the handle for no reason or just get really anxious and then the next day you're like, God, why was I worried about that so much yesterday? It might be down to your level of sleep, or specifically the amount of REM sleep that you're getting. And if you need further evidence of this, look at children, right? Just watch them when they haven't had sleep, and any of your parents or those of you that have got small children in your life will know exactly what I'm talking about. You have a child that hasn't had their nap, and your day is going to be absolute hell, with them having a tantrum at every possible thing because they cannot control their emotional response. And your child that would normally be happy playing in the sandpit with his digger, another child comes along, you know, normally would be happy to share the digger. Suddenly on this day, other child comes along and it becomes an absolute screaming tantrum and your like child hits the other child over the head with the digger, right? We are slightly better at controlling our emotions that generally we don't um, hit someone in the office with a stapler, but our emotional response is a similar thing you know we can overreact to small things that we normally wouldn't do so so in summary REM sleep mostly memory um, recall I suppose recall is kind of memory um, learning motor skills and also your ability to control your emotions also REM sleep happens mostly in the second half of your 
sleep. So the first half is your deep sleep and then in the second half it's your REM sleep. So if you have someone that, say for example me, I go to bed at about 10pm, probably asleep by 10.30pm at the latest and then I get up at 6.30am. So, but say what I have to do is, I don't know, (laughs) I'm just laughing at myself talking about this now, but say I had to catch a flight, right? Something that's so 2019 pre-COVID. But anyway, say that's, and I have to get up at, say, 4.30 a.m. rather than 6.30 a.m. So when I look at how much sleep I've lost, I've lost two hours of that sleep. Um, So where I've lost 25% of my sleep. But actually what I've lost mostly is I've lost 50, 60, or maybe 70% of my REM sleep. So that's massive, right? And this is probably why many of those times when you do those early mornings, you have, you might have days where you just, you know, don't react too well to other people that you're working with or situations. And also too, where you might lose control of, uh, you know, self-control around what you're eating. So these days, I know, for example, I would be, just all I would want to eat is simple carbohydrates like a cheese scone and also my ability to have self-control and be like actually clear that's not going to be great for your insulin is also massively reduced and that's because those parts of your brain that derive your ability for self-control are hindered by that lack of sleep especially that REM sleep and also what what is driven up by lack of sleep is your um, body will seek out those simple carbohydrates because your desire part of your brain is more activated so it wants to make you feel good because you feel shit from having too little sleep it wants you to feel good and so it will seek out highly pleasurable and desirable foods like simple carbohydrates and sugars so when you feel like you just want you're just craving all of the foods that you know aren't great for your insulin this is why often the reason this is why when you've had a poor night's sleep now deep sleep on the other hand Deep sleep is super important for our body repairing itself. So think about, you know, REM sleep, we talked a lot about brain, deep sleep, body. There is massive crossover, right? Like I'm simplifying the shit out of this for you guys um, and also for myself because I am not a sleep scientist. I'm not a sleep doctor. Um, You want to know more information, I have provided some really good resources in the show notes for you. Um, Can't recommend enough the book Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. So take my analogies with a grain of salt about deep in body because there's a massive crossover and I'm sure many of you may even be far more educated on this than me and go hold on Claire (laughs) deep sleep has some big memory components yeah I get it okay I'm just kind of trying to simplify this a little bit so deep sleep though um, really important for our immune function so we're talking about immunity again I don't know if you have picked this up in yourself or with children or with other people but For me, I know that as soon as I get one or two nights even of poor sleep and that's when if I'm going to get a cold or flu or um, generally it's a cold, it will be because of those, straight after those nights of poor sleep. And that is no correlation, right? We know that there is a big important part that our deep sleep plays in actually restoring our immune system. Um, I can trace my history of this right back to when I was a child and I used to get constantly reoccurring tonsillitis and then later at university with my years of heavy training and heavy partying, um, it moved to bronchitis. So I know there's a huge correlation and now I know the reason why, because that lack of deep sleep can really impact our immune system. 
The other thing that it does, one of the other, one of the other things, is that it's really important for our cardiovascular health. So we know from studies that, um, for example, think about blood pressure. Blood pressure is part of your cardiovascular. Well, it's, a, it's a measure of how well your cardiovascular system is performing. And we know that when um, people that get good nights, good amount of deep sleep, their blood pressure relative to what it was the night before even when they've controlled for circadian rhythm and other things that can affect blood pressure, we know that when they get good amounts of deep sleep, will almost sort of recalibrate their blood pressure. And one of the reasons for this is that deep sleep communicates a calming signal to our, the part of our brain that releases those um, hormones that control our fight and flight sympathetic nervous system so think about you know adrenaline cortisol those things that are going to make us want to run or jump or fight or flee we know that those hormones are you know seriously connected to our cardiovascular system which then you know increases our blood pressure and the risk of heart attack and heart failure and stroke so the more that we can kind of disarm those hormones and stop them for long periods of time over the night the better and that's the way that it can help to kind of restore our cardiovascular system or at least help our cardiovascular system and probably not surprisingly, it's this deep sleep as well that's super important for our blood glucose and insulin regulation as well too. So this is also crucial for those of you with PCOS that know you have high insulin. So that's the background because I do need to explain that because we'll be talking about different things that can affect those different sleep stages. And you need to know that while time asleep and time in bed is very important, actually getting good quality sleep is equally as important. And this has been shown in studies of sleep deprivation in rats. So they did this back in, I think it was 1983. Not allowed to do it anymore for ethical reasons, as I'm sure you'll understand soon when I tell you what happened. But basically they, they wanted to understand how important sleep was for survival. And so they deprived rats of sleep and they deprived them of food. So two groups, I think it was. And the... Rats that were deprived of sleep died quicker than those that were deprived of food. And in terms of the sleep stages, so a lot of people talk about deep sleep being the important one, but REM sleep is arguably more important, well, as important, if not more important, because when they selectively deprived the rats of REM sleep, they actually died just as quick as those that were deprived of total sleep. So total sleep where they just kept on turning their lights on and waking the, you know, keeping the rats awake. REM sleep, they would put um, electrodes on them to identify when they were in this going into this rapid eye movement sleep. So they would be able to sleep, but they would just wake them up every time they went into REM sleep. And so those rats died just as quickly, I think it was, just it, almost as quickly or maybe it was even as quickly as those that were completely deprived of sleep. So that's why we know that it is super important and why I said earlier on that if these sleep stages and getting enough sleep wasn't important, then evolution would have bred that out of us by now. Because, you know, when you think about our ancestors who are hunter-gatherers, sleep makes them the most vulnerable. So why would you want to, you know, them to be vulnerable? Why wouldn't it be a genetically positive thing to be able to stay awake all night and fight off things or work or grow crops or whatever it was and the reason is simply that sleep is critical there's no other way around it so then now into the treatments what can you do if you just you're like I'm trying Claire I'm trying to get my seven to nine hours sleep and I'm trying to get good quality sleep but it's just not happening for me 
So when it comes to sleep, there's many different things we can do to aid our body to sleep more and or get more of those, that deep sleep and REM sleep. So one, probably one of the one I just want to start with first is that what happens if you are getting a good amount of sleep but you're still waking up feeling absolutely exhausted because this one has got a really direct link back into those sleep cycles. So this is, um, there can be many reasons why you could get at least eight hours sleep but still wake feeling tired in the morning. The first of course is that you're actually not getting enough sleep. So you might be sitting here thinking, well, you've just said seven to nine hours is adequate, I'm getting seven hours, therefore I am getting adequate sleep, but it may not be enough for you, okay? There is a very large variance there, seven to nine hours is huge in terms of percentage of the amount of sleep you're getting, so you might be the kind of person who needs more like nine hours. So the thing that I say to all the women coming through my protocol is give yourself nine hours in bed to see how much your body needs and then test it. See if you can give yourself say nine hours or even nine and a half hours if possible and set your, you know, so that you can set your alarms, you can still get up to start work in the morning, but see how long. You might find that actually given that time in bed, your body does um, choose to to take mostly nine hours of sleep. I know that I am certainly on that end uh, when I was saying before that I generally am in bed asleep, you know, before, well, 10 o'clock and get up at 6.30. That is the time that I need. If Ideally, if I could get to bed by 9.30 every night so I could get at least um, nine hours of sleep, that would be amazing. I just, I really struggle to get to sleep before, well, my body just doesn't feel that tired before sort of 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. And... Um, different things can affect this but genetics can really affect this so about 30% of the population are early risers so you know they're really happy waking up at dawn with my partner as one of those I am not right I am not a a 5am happy to wake up at that time in the morning kind of person and that also dictates then what time you feel sleepy at night so he's out for the count by 9pm whereas I'm like I'm starting to start winding down at 9 with the intention that I'm asleep by 10. Ideally, if I could be asleep by 9.30, that'd be great because I, I have to get up by 6.30 to be able to get some exercise done in the morning because that's what makes me feel good to then be able to get to work in time. So I have to, whereas if I could change that, then I probably would be the kind of person that would get to bed by 10, 10.30 maximum asleep and then wake up and it's waking up at 7.30 would probably be my ideal. So there's, as I said, there's 30% of the population that are dawn risers, about 40% that are like me, that sort of mid time, you know, really comfortable waking up between sort of 6.30 to 7.30. And then there are those that are the night hours, about 30%. And that is genetically driven. So again, um, if you want more information about that, that's in that book, Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. And I think that's quite liberating learning that because if you're like me, you're like, oh, I just need to you know, get up earlier at six, but it's just not a natural, nice time for me to wake up. And it's always a struggle. So the more that we can kind of just accept that and try and work our um, ourselves around that, the better. Obviously, for those people that are more night owls, it's even harder for them because most work structures just don't work for them. That, you know, having to be at work by 8.30 or 9 is not natural for them when their body's not getting tired till sort of more like midnight, 11 11 p.m. midnight. So if this is you, I really feel for you because 
the current our work structure is just not that well geared to it. Maybe lockdown has actually been a godsend for you because you can get a bit more sleep um, when normally you would be far more comfortable starting work at 9.30 or even 10 and, you know, and getting to bed much later by sort of 11, 12. But in many cases, you're forced to uh, have to oppose your natural instinct and get up so that you can be at work by 8 or 8.30. So slight side tangent there, but I just thought that that was so interesting. I thought you would find that interesting too. But going back to the amount of time, so it might be, and this is be the first thing that I would try, is giving yourself more time in bed to sleep. So giving yourself at least nine hours, nine hours opportunity to sleep, right? And it might be that actually your body consistently wakes up after seven and a half hours. Great would love to be you um, but for those others of you it might be more your body wakes up consistently at n- after nine hours of sleep and then you'll know that actually that's what's optimal for you and maybe the reason why you've been tired when you've been waking is because you just haven't been getting enough sleep the second thing is when it comes to waking up feeling tired even after you've had a good night's sleep so if you are you know if you have given yourself that time to get to sleep the opportunity to have nine hours sleep and you are waking up naturally, but yet you still feel really tired, then that's where we want to look at, well, what actually could it be? So the few reasons there is um, that you're getting poor quality sleep, you have low stress hormones, or you have something else like hypothyroidism or an iron deficiency, right? So let's go through these three things. First off, poor sleep quality. So this is going back to those sleep cycles. So if you've tried sleeping longer and that hasn't resolved your tiredness, um, you might not be getting enough deep sleep or REM sleep. So consequently, you'll have that feeling of waking up, feeling like you've been hit by a bus, even though you're like, God, I've been in bed for like nine hours. So getting good, adequate deep sleep and REM sleep can be a little bit of an art, but there are a few things that are absolutely compulsory. Firstly is remove alcohol totally, or at least within six hours of bedtime. So alcohol is one of the most potent disruptors of our REM sleep. So remember the REM sleep, the emotional control, etc. The ridiculous paradox of this is that so many of you will be like, but hang on, alcohol helps me get to sleep. You know, a glass of wine a night helps me wind down and helps me actually get to sleep. The problem with alcohol though is it's not necessarily, so being asleep and being unconscious are two totally different things, right? Alcohol is a sedative. A sedative does not necessarily put you into sleep, it makes you unconscious. So what happens when you have alcohol is that your sleep becomes more fragmented because the alcohol will actually stimulate your stress hormones, causing you to wake up in the night. Most of the time though, this won't be long enough for you to remember it. So you might be like, well, hang on Claire, no, I don't wake up when I've had a glass of wine before I go to bed, I am out to it. And, but I would say no, likely if you wear a sleep tracker or something, you might see that actually you are waking up in the night, if you are wearing a really sensitive sleep tracker that is. So the second way that it stops you from getting an, you know, good quality sleep is that it completely suppresses, or it's one of the most powerful suppressors of REM sleep that we have. So what happens is when your body breaks down alcohol, it produces a byproduct called aldehydes and ketones. And the aldehydes in particular, block your brain's ability to generate REM sleep. A really good study that they did to prove this was one where they got three groups and 
they were uni- I think they were university students, I think, and they got them to learn a new language. It was kind of like coding, I guess. So um, if you've coded before, then there's like lots of rules and of that language of develop that developers use. And so what they did is they got each three group to learn the same thing. They then found out that they had a really good grasp of it. So at the end of day one, they were ninety percent accurate in their tests of this new language. Then. A week later, they were then tested to see how much of that information they had remembered. So there was three groups. So they did this, t- taught them on day one. And then one, uh, one group that night, they allowed them to get a good night's sleep. Then the other group, they got them a little drunk. They fed them some shots of vodka and orange juice, which I think sounds horrific. But anyway, you know, when you're a student, you'll drink anything. Um, but that they gave them that and then... The third group, they didn't give them. They allowed them to sleep well for the first two nights, and then on the third night, then they got them a little bit drunk, right? So not crazy. Just I think it was something like they they controlled the amount of alcohol with body weight and stuff like that to make sure that there was none that were absolutely plastered and some that were just a little bit tipsy. So they were all just a little bit, um, but something to the tune of like three shots of vodka or something like that. And then they tested their recall the week later. So what they found was that the first group, the group that were allowed to sleep really well for the whole week, they had incredible memory of this of the language that they'd learned. In fact, it was even better than when they tested it after a day at the end of day one. Whereas the group that had got a little bit drunk that night, they could only remember fifty percent of what they were taught. And really interestingly, the group that were allowed to sleep well for two nights, so you think about it, you're like, oh, well, surely if we just let, we only learnt that language on one day, so say on Monday, and then we slept really well Monday night and Tuesday night to try and really, you know, shove that memory in and really process that and make sure we learnt it, and then we can go out and have a few drinks on Wednesday night. But no, actually what they found was that the ones that went, that had the drink on Wednesday night they had a 40% reduction in how much they could remember. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> I was like, how on earth did we ever pass university if these are the kind of stats that we get, that we're only, you know, after a night of drinking, we pretty much wiped out 50% of those lectures we went to. So that is just a really good example of why it is so critical for that REM sleep. Now, I know that most of you won't be drinking three shots of vodka in a night, but I have noticed this, and I think that there's probably a huge genetic variation with how little or much alcohol would affect you and how your body processes that. But I know for me that even one glass of wine close to bedtime is, so say with dinner, when I say close to bedtime, I mean around dinner, not at 9pm when I'm expecting to go to bed at 9.30, this would be around, you know, 6 7. I can see on my sleep tracking that that affects my uh, REM sleep. So for you, maybe one is fine, but it might not be. And this is why I disagree. There's a lot of you know, information out there saying, oh, a glass of red wine a day is okay. It's like, well, in what context? Actually, when we're talking about sleep, it probably isn't. Yeah, maybe for cardiovascular health. You know, if you're just looking at that as at an isolated thing and what you can, what maybe the antioxidants you're getting from the red wine or something like that. But actually, when we see how important sleep is for, for our cardiovascular health and for so many other parts of our life and health, then I actually don't think that that recommendation stacks up. 
so especially maybe maybe I don't know maybe I'm genetically very susceptible maybe my body doesn't process that and other people they can have two drinks and they're fine but I would just say if you're really struggling to you know feel refreshed after you've woken up then I would really recommend laying off the alcohol especially I know that many of you during lockdown it's been a bit of a you know, it's become a bit of a habit and that's totally normal given that there's not a lot else going on in the world and your life that to, you know, having a glass of wine at the end of your day is a thing that kind of signals the end of your work day when you're not leaving work to come home, but it could be having a really big impact on your sleep quality. So I would really recommend just abstaining. Maybe you have one night a week that you have some alcohol, but the other nights you don't and see how it goes or maybe you give yourself a month off and see how you feel after that so now going back to the things waking you up in the night like how alcohol can do that the other thing to do is obviously to remove anything else that's constantly waking you up through the night so if your partner snores then well you probably can't remove them but you can try and block that out so getting some really good earplugs is a really good thing so I use they're called Max earplugs M-A-C-K-S I just get them from Amazon or from pharmacy they're like a silicon and they sort of cover your ear cavity Um, rather than like the foam ones which actually goes into the ear which I find a they fall out and b they're kind of painful because they go in the silicon just kind of covers your ear I'm actually looking at getting some custom made because I have used earplugs pretty much every night since for probably the last 10 years so I'm actually going okay now's the time to invest in some you know ones that are molded to my ears but until now those are the ones that I have used as those Max earplugs and I find them incredible uh, and it's hilarious when I when we go away um, hiking doing an overnight hike and we're staying in a hut with other people I always take a packet of these earplugs to give to my friends because I was like you're going to need these likely there'll be other people in the hut that snore and they use them and they're like oh my god these are the best earplugs I have ever used I am not sponsored by Max by the way these are just um, real life quotes from real life friends who needed those earplugs in their time of need brilliant also for things like sleeping on planes you're probably not doing that anytime soon but just blocking out the ambient noise and really good at blocking out the snoring as well so that can be a big thing that can wake you up Um, also light you know making sure that your room is completely dark if you are like me and there's a street light right outside your window, then you probably want to get some really good blackout curtains or a, just an eye mask, a really good eye mask to wear when you go to bed as well. Um, and make sure that you take this whenever you go away um, because it will be your lifesaver for when you're not in control of your sleeping environment. Same thing, there'll certainly be things that you can't stop from waking up in the night, small children being one, um, but also sometimes um, your sleeping partner, so your partner. If they tend to roll over and kick and stuff like that, it might be the case. And and Matthew Walker actually recommends this in his book. He's like, my partner and I, we sleep in separate beds because it's we we realise the importance of great sleep, and we actually don't sleep too well together. So don't be afraid of having sleep divorces. They can be super effective, even if it's just for a couple of nights a week when you really feel like you absolutely must get a good night's sleep. And then you might realize that that's what works for you at least a couple of nights a week, if not all the time. The other thing is pets in the bed. Now, these can be really disruptive. I know this for a fact. My partner really wants our our cat to sleep in the bed with us. I am not keen because I can see from my sleep tracking device that she wakes 
us up all the time or at least me um, multiple times during the night so this that could also be a really big thing and you might not remember it I don't I certainly do not remember waking up during the night but I can see it consistently on my sleep tracker and I use the aura ring o-u-r-a again not sponsored just really use this a lot as a it's probably my only wearable device that I have um, apart from I use a Garmin watch when I'm exercising sometimes but the Aura watch or a ring is the only thing I use consistently and this uh, yeah it is the most sensitive sleep tracker and it does show that I do wake up during the night a lot when she's in the bed with us so that could be the same for you and you're just not realizing it the next thing that's super important for getting good quality sleep is removing as much light and especially blue light as possible before in the evening hours so this has been probably one of the most disruptive things for our sleep was the invention of the light bulb um, which because previously we used to start winding down and going to sleep when it started getting dark and then waking up with the light with the invention of the light bulb that all changed and it's got even worse since the invention of the LED light bulb which was in 1997 and because this emits a lot of blue light which is really damaging for our melatonin so melatonin is our hormone that we produce to make us glide into a sleep state so it's what makes us sleepy and if we do not have enough melatonin it's going to um, really we're going to really struggle to get to sleep so I'm going to talk about that more later when we're talking about people that are struggling to get to sleep. But for those of you that are waking up tired, the other thing it can do is that it can seriously affect your ability or your, the amount of deep or REM sleep that you're getting. So they did this study which was they compared reading a printed book before going to bed and reading on an iPad. And I'll explain the results later for the... Um, getting to bed but what it did is that the reading on the iPad compared to the group that read a book by physical book by um, bedside lamp the iPad suppressed their melatonin levels by over 50% but not only that it decreased the quality of their sleep by reducing the amount of REM sleep that they got and this effect didn't just end after that first night what happened is that then the second day they felt less rested and sleepier throughout the day but then on the third day they still had effects so the the group that read the the book on the iPad they had a 90 minute lag in their melatonin rising compared to the group that read the book so say for example the group that read the physical book their melatonin started rising at 8 p.m the group that read on the iPad, their melatonin didn't start rising until 9.30 p.m., therefore delaying their ability to get to sleep earlier. And that was three days later, after even after they stopped. So they only did this, so they stopped reading off the iPad, and then three days later, they were still seeing this effect. So if you're waking up feeling really tired, I recommend removing all devices, especially those that emit blue light, about two hours prior to bed. If you really can't do that, so say you've got some urgent work that needs to get done, I get it, I live in the real world too, I know this happens, then please use a blue light blocker. Um, this, these often can come with most of the new Apple devices. If you have an old Apple device, like an old Apple laptop, you can download f.lux, so f.freddy.lux, and that puts in a blue light blocker on your screen and you can set the time that it starts coming on so for me I have it that my screen starts basically after lunch it starts getting more and more yellow 
um, to block out the blue light. You can also get blue light blocking glasses. These are like orangey lens that then um, block out the light, the blue light. And also too though, I recommend just trying to decrease the amount of light, whether it's blue light or not. So, you know, think about think about mood lighting. You know, um, if you've got a dimmer like we do in our house, very much a 90s feature, but really good. And or even if you've just got a couple of lamps that when you're maybe, you know, on the couch reading before you go to bed or even watching some TV, ideally if it's a TV that doesn't have emit a lot of blue light and it's far away from you, um, turning on the lamp instead of having the overhead, your overhead lights, that can be a really helpful in helping to tell your body that it's time to go to sleep and also making sure that it's not going to disrupt you and your amount of deep or REM sleep that you're getting. Next thing that's super important for sleep quality is the temperature of your bedroom. So the optimal temperature for sleeping is actually 65 degrees Fahrenheit or 18 degrees Celsius. And that assumes that you have standard kind of, you know, PJs and and bedded clothing as well. But it's actually probably a lot cooler than what you would think. Most people, I think, set their house around 70 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit. So this might be a bit of a um, surprise to you to know that actually best temperature is 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Interestingly, this is also why having a bath before going to bed works. Not because it makes you warm and sleepy, but actually the fact of warming your body temperature up and then getting out all the like all the blood rushes to your extremities and then releases all the heat, which means that your core body temperature then drops. Consequently, you A, both fall asleep quicker and also too, you in many cases have a 10 to 15% increase in deep sleep um, in many healthy adults. And that's what research has shown. So cooling your room down can be really important. Now, I know that for many of you, if you're in summer at the moment, this might be a little bit hard to do if you don't have air conditioning. So in that case, you can get these cooling pads um, that you can sleep on as well, similar to what you would have to, you know, as a, like an electric blanket to warm your bed up. You also have cooling pads to cool your bed down as well. So it uh, might be worthwhile investigating things like this to help you, um, you know, reduce your core body temperature if you are really struggling with, if you think that heat might be a factor playing a role in your, your poor sleep quality. And the last thing that can make you feel like absolute rubbish when you wake up, and this is probably the most likely and also the hardest to fix is high stress hormones. So, well, in many many cases, it's actually that your cortisol is too low in the morning. So cortisol should be rising in the early hours of the morning to make you wake up energized and feeling good. But if you have had high stress for a long period of time, this can lead to low morning cortisol called so your cortisol awakening response should be that your cortisol is rising and it's at its highest um, about 30 minutes after you've woken up Um, in many cases if you do some sensitive uh, stress hormone testing like the dutch test you'll see that your cortisol flat lines in the morning you don't get that rise and this is what you can make you feel really groggy and sleepy in the morning as well so things there, well, firstly, removing or switching to decaf. So removing caffeine or switching to decaf. So caffeine is a stimulant that keeps us awake and alert. Um, that can be fine for many people, but if you're struggling to sleep or you're struggling to, you know, with quality of sleep, you don't want that, even potentially early in the morning. 
So there was a study that showed that dosing people with caffeine at 7 a.m. led to a reduction in the quality of deep sleep throughout their night. So I'd really recommend switching to decaf. And then also doing some other things to improve your stress hormones. And we go into that in detail in the PCOS protocol. So if you want help with that, then that's your place to go. But otherwise, I think probably the quickest win is um, if you are drinking caffeinated beverages is to wean yourself off those. So that is all for the um, waking up feeling really groggy for today. Um, What we're going to do is I'm going to go into a little bit more about that next week. And then we're also going to talk about problems getting sleep and problems staying asleep as well. So those are kind of the three areas that we'll talk about next week. So that's all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope you're having a lovely week, uh, even though you're in lockdown. And so are we now too. So I feel you. But we will yeah hopefully this is starting to help especially for those of you that have had maybe lockdown induced sleeping problems or maybe you've had sleeping problems for many years and helping to sort out what's driving those and what you can do about it also next week we'll be talking a little bit about why sleeping pills are not the way to go what sleeping you know uh, drugs like ambien actually do to your body and your sleep and why they are not actually improving your sleep at all they're just making you unconscious and what other methods are that can really help especially if you're having trouble getting to sleep which is what a lot of people use ambient for or other sleep drugs so look forward to talking to you about that next week bye for now now stand by for our disclaimer the information contained in this podcast has been prepared for the purpose of providing information, including about the PCOS Nutritionist products and services, and is designed to support clients' overall wellness. It is not intended to provide medical advice or designed to rectify, treat, or cure any specific medical conditions or diseases. Nothing stated or shared in our podcast is intended to be and must not be taken to be medical advice. Please seek the advice of professionals as appropriate regarding the evaluation of any specific information, opinion, advice or content contained in our podcast.